Well, good evening, church. How are you? It is good to be back with you. It's always great to be back at Beacon Baptist Church. Uh, this is definitely a, a home away from home for us, and uh, it's always a privilege to be here. It's been a while since I've been back in the pulpit, but it's so good to be with you. Uh, if you didn't know, if you're not on the Facebook or whatever, uh, yes, uh, me and Natalie will be uh, departing South Florida for the tundra of Pennsylvania, and uh, the only crazy thing that would make us do that is the Lord's will, so we are confident in what God is doing in our lives. He has uh, called uh, me and our, our whole family to be the, uh, the pastor at uh, Stonington Baptist Church in a small town called Paxinos, Pennsylvania. And the Lord has just really been moving on us uh, the last several months, and He's made it very clear that this is uh, what God's will is for us. And we are so excited. We are sad to leave the place we've called home for the last several years, but we know that uh, God is behind us. He is moving on us, and He has uh, definitely made this, um, uh, this decision very, very clear in our hearts and minds. And so we are thankful for that. We appreciate your prayers. Uh, we will be packing up uh, over over the next several months, uh, looking to transition up there around the June time frame after our, our little boy comes along. So Natalie's uh, 32 weeks this week. I, I think I got that right. I have to remember, get that number right or else I'm, I will get in trouble later. Um, but anyways, uh, so around June, we're going to be transitioning up there. So we appreciate your prayers uh, for that. Um, it's good to be with you. You're in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Um, I love this passage, and I think it's really important because I think it's really relevant to us today. Uh, of course, Revelation is uh, John's sort of, uh, his recording of the visions he's been given from Jesus himself. Of course, Revelation 1 sort of gives us that scene where he is given this immaculate vision of the glorified Christ, and he's told in verse 4 of Revelation 1 to write down what he sees, excuse me, actually in verse 11, to write down what he sees and include in that vision letters to seven churches. And these churches, uh, he, records, uh, he records these letters for us in Revelation 2 and in 3. And these, each of these letters is specific for what these churches were enduring. They were enduring persecution and hardship and suffering for the sake of of the gospel, and so therefore each of these letters serves to uh, stir and also strengthen their faith. Many of these churches had turned away from what they had first known. But even though each of these letters is different in terms of uh, wording and form, uh, much of their content is the same in the sense that each of these letters that John writes to the churches is meant to sort of uh, reorient and reinvigorate the, uh, the faith of these people through a glorious revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Those are the first five words of the book, right? The first five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I believe that that is essentially the theme for the book. It's really John is saying that this is who our God is. We've seen God in Jesus Christ as our Savior in the Gospels. This is God in Jesus Christ as our King. He is our Sovereign so he's the one you can rely on, even as you go through the most uh, torrent, uh, torrential suffering in your life, this sovereign king is never going to leave his throne. And this is the one you can count on. And this, I think that's what John is doing through this letter. But then coming to verse 14 of Revelation 3, we are introduced to the church at Laodicea, the seventh letter to the churches. 
Now, Laodicea, you have to know, um, it was a commercial city. It was a very large city in the first century, and it was a very prominent sort of um, commercial trading city, and it lied about 90 miles east of Ephesus and about 11 miles west of Colossae. Now, I don't say that to you to bore you with geography. (laughs) I think it's important because... um, it's interesting to me that, well, let me say this. The, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And so if you turn with me really quickly to Colossians chapter 4, it's interesting to note the relationship between Laodicea and Colossae because they were so close. And in fact, in this letter to the Colossian church, Paul mentions his heart for the believers in this church. In Colossians chapter 4, look at verse 12. Paul is writing to them, and he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God? For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So Paul's heart is not just for these believers here, it's also for the believers in Laodicea. He is zealous for them that they would be uh, invigorated and strengthened by his doctrine. And this is sort of a little uh, sort of nod to the idea that the Colossian letter is uh, a letter that is uh, most likely what they were called circular letters. It was an epistle that was passed around to a lot of local churches for public reading. And I think this is significant because when you understand what Paul is doing in the Colossian church, you also kind of get, get an idea of what his heart was for the Laodiceans. And what was that? Well, turn to Colossians 2 really quickly. Because in the first three verses here, I think we get sort of his, uh, his thesis statement for what he's trying to do with this epistle, which also plays into what John is going to do in his letter to the Laodiceans as well. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Paul writes, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the, in the flesh. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The thing that stands out to me in these verses are the monetary terms that Paul employs as he's writing to this church He's talking about the riches of the full assurance of the understanding of the gospel and of the treasures that are in Jesus Christ himself. And it's not by mistake that he is using those types of terms when talking to the Colossians and by proxy to the Laodiceans. Because, again, look at Revelation 3. If you look at, if you just look through these verses, you can note the same sorts of terms of riches and monetary economic language being used by the Apostle John. And that is, I think, speaks to what's happening in this church. You see, Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city. 
They were extremely prosperous. Its citizens were very successful in a lot of different industries. History sort of tells us that they were most known for this black sort of woolen cloth that, was, that held a very, very high commercial value. And they had a lot of success in trading it. And its profitability is further sort of known when you, uh, if you sort of are made aware of an earthquake that occurred in the city in about AD 60. This earthquake uh, served to level the city of Laodicea. And because of their pride and because they were so confident in their own sort of prestige and prosperity, they accepted no Roman assistance when they were trying to rebuild the city. They did it of themselves. The Laodiceans restructured and reconstructed uh, their entire city of their own means. They were a wealthy people and very affluent and proud people. And I think such is why Paul's letter and John's letter speaks of monetary language. I think very clearly this church had lost its investment. It had lost its focus and where its priority lies. It says right there in verse number, um, excuse me, in verse number 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. This was the Laodiceans' heart. They were self-sufficient. They had uh, gotten distracted by the industry that they could amass here under the sun instead of investing their lives, as Paul wrote, in the treasures of the wisdom of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, whereas the Laodiceans might have appeared wealthy and might have appeared well off, the Spirit of God knew their hearts. They were desperate. They were desperate spiritually. They weren't spiritually healthy. And I think this letter really serves to sort of disrupt this sort of leisurely attitude that the Laodiceans had towards the things of the gospel. And I think very quickly, I want to point out three quick lessons that we can learn from this letter that can kind of disrupt our leisure and our leisurely approach to the gospel. First of all, in verses 15 and 16, I think we see a lesson about spiritual work. Look at it again at verse 15. The Spirit says, I know thy works, that thou art cold, neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The Spirit of God begins his counsel right at the heart of what this church had troubles with. They, uh, by examining their works, I guess I should say their lack of work. You know, there have been many sermons on these two verses about the lukewarmness of Christianity. And it's not as if God is saying that you should be hot or you shouldn't be cold, uh, because he's basically saying, I wish you would be one or the other. Lukewarm, I don't know about you, but I hate room temperature water. I, I will act like God and I will spew it out of my mouth. I think it's disgusting. <laughs> I don't like lukewarm water, room temperature water. And I think the same thing is what God is emphasizing here. Lukewarm water has no benefit. Cold water refreshes. You come in from outside after a long day's work and you drink a nice glass of cold water and it refreshes you. Or at nighttime when you're, when you're feeling ill, you make yourself a cup of hot steaming water and maybe put some tea in there and it's a therapeutic drink. One or the other has a benefit, but lukewarm water has no benefit, I think is what, what the Spirit is saying here, and therefore it's of no value. 
You, your spiritual works, your actually lack of spiritual works is pointless. It's useless. He says, I know your works, the Spirit says. I know that you haven't really been doing anything for my name. You've been relying on yourselves. This God, he knew what they were really like. Whereas the world might have seen them as a wealthy, prosperous city, uh, and they might have seen that as God's blessing, God was more interested in their hearts. And whereas they were more interested, invested in their business, God was saying to them that they needed to be more invested in the business of the gospel. They needed to be more interested in the riches of his name. Wealth and financial success had made these Laodicean Christians sort of indifferent. They were lukewarm. They'd become sort of useless. And within this Laodicean church there existed neither a burning zeal for the things of God, but neither outright rejection of it either. Rather, they just kind of sort of festered a lukewarmness. In a condition that was so nauseating that again in verse 16, God says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. I want to spit you out of my mouth. And it's not that he's removing his promise. It's actually he's trying to get them to see the gravity of what their condition really meant. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he has a great quote on this passage. He says, 5,000 members of a church, all lukewarm, will be 5,000 impediments. (laughs) And while that's kind of funny, but it's actually kind of true. And it's exactly what the Spirit of God is getting at here in this statement, in this assertion, that their lukewarmness was impeding the spread of his name at especially a crucial juncture in history. And so it is we see that how much God despises sort of a lukewarm, lackadaisical approach to Christianity Those who profess Christ with their mouths, but for themselves, they want to live lives of worldly comfort and security and safety. And it's not, I'm not up here to tell you that you can't enjoy those things, but I think what the Spirit is after here, where does the gospel rank for you? Where is the gospel in your life? What is your priority? Is it in the riches of your industry or is it in the riches of redemption that you have in Jesus Christ? Which one holds greater value? The Laodiceans, I think, were okay with what their lives looked like. They were okay with the status quo. They were okay with being lukewarm. They were okay with sort of being sort of spectators on the sidelines of the Great Commission. But as one writer says, you are, my reader, either for Christ or you are against Christ. And in this great controversy between Christ and Satan, you are neither an indifferent or unconcerned spectator. You can't be unconcerned with the things of the gospel if you claim to be a Christian. It must affect you and infect your life. The gospel of God, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ himself, I think carries with it very specific implications. And for those, you can just go read Galatians 5, namely the fruit of the Spirit. And that is to say, where you find redeemed people, you will find evidences of their redemption. And in this church, there was no such evidences. They were lukewarm. They were leisurely They were self-sufficient. 
And that brings me to my next point, because not only do we have a lesson about spiritual work, but in the next verses, 17 through 18, I think we have a lesson about spiritual wealth. Look at what the Spirit says next. He says, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. The Laodiceans, as I said, were a prosperous city. They enjoyed uh, lives of luxury that not many cities uh, surrounding them enjoyed. They were extravagant. They were self-assured. They were self-sufficient. And this self-sufficiency sort of blinded them to who they truly were in the eyes of God. God, (laughs) the Spirit of God just doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush. He's very blunt. You see yourself this way, but actually, in fact, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. You have no idea how needy you are. And this reprimand of these uh, Laodicean Christians, I think, is not necessarily because of their finances. I think it's because they had misplaced their faith. They had put it in their finances. It wasn't that Jesus was coming in and saying, you need to get rid of all of your business. It says you have put your trust in your business and instead of me. You've put it in your success and you've become self-sufficient, giving you a false sense of security. I think this is a classic pattern of the heart of man. When we see success, we immediately think it's of our own doing. But rather than being rich towards God, the heart of man is often rich towards himself And this is when we need to pray for the Spirit's grace, which not only helps us in our need, it helps us to recognize our desperate need. And such is what the Spirit is after here. You have no idea how needy you are, is what he's saying. Look at verse 17 again. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then he says, he follows it up, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Christ's counsel to them is that they aren't without hope, but that with him, all of the things that they need, all the price, precise things that can remedy their estate is found in him alone. I just love the parallels of verse 17 and 18, that, that yes, they might have been poor and destitute, but in him is found the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. And yes, they might be without clothing, they might be naked, but in him they can find clothing. And not just any clothing, but the white raiment of his righteousness. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 61, these are the garments of salvation. Or even as the Apostle John says later in Revelation chapter 7, that these are the white robes that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is the dress they can find in Jesus Christ. And yes, they might be blind, but in him, in Jesus Christ alone, they can have their sight back again. Jesus Christ meets every single need that this church has. And I love that that word buy there in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. (laughs) This word buy is actually the word redeem. 
meaning to buy back. So rather than investing their time and their money and their energies and all that they were and and their own industrious reach in the world and their own business, he is counseling them, invest in the gospel. Invest in this thing that I say to buy, but as it's, well, let me turn there. I was going to miss, I'm probably, I was going to misquote it and I don't want to do that. Isaiah 55 verse 1 is a verse that I think harkens back to this. Isaiah 55, 1 says this, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. (laughs) It reminds me of this verse. How can you buy something without money? And that's because it's completely free. (laughs) It's the gospel. It's the gospel of free redemption. He's saying, invest in that. Come buy of me something that you don't have to pay for because I've paid for it all on my own. I've paid for it with my own blood, so to speak. And that very gospel is what, what this Spirit's final lesson is to this church because we've had a lesson about spiritual work and spiritual wealth. But look, lastly, in the last couple of verses, a lesson about a spiritual welcome. Verse 19 says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. All these severe disciplinary remarks are bathed in this verse, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. This word love here is very suggestive of sort of a deep, passionate affection. And so I think we see that Christ is not coming in and lamb-blasting this church out of a sense of hatred. He's coming in and loving them in a very critical way, yes, but at a very critical time. He's not coming in as a tyrant, sort of laying down harsh rules and saying, this is how you need to get back together. He's coming in sort of like a parent would a child. Loving them, yes, disciplining them, but yes, loving them. (laughs) Me and Natalie are going through that right now with a terrible (laughs) two-year-old. I never knew, you know, that line that this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I always thought that that was bogus. (laughs) But it's not. Um, I've had to say it and feel it when you have to give your little two-year-old a little pop on the bottom and they look up at you with the saddest, biggest eyes. And then I, 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 I know that. I know the truth of that statement. <laughs> but I think such is what Jesus Christ is doing with this church. He's not disciplining them out of some sense of hatred or some sense of anger. He's disciplining and rebuking them because he loves them so dearly. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And what's more, he follows up this correction of them with an invitation into fellowship with him once again. I love verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I'm enamored by the picture of this verse, of Jesus sitting with us and dining with us and eating with us. Of Jesus just having a meal with us. And that's his picture of returning to fellowship. And I think it's not merely a sort of beautiful image of the renewal and repentance and restoration that we can have uh, uh, with Christ. 
but I also think it's a good reminder of what we get in the gospel itself. That is, we get Christ himself. Because look at that word, that word sup there. I think it's interesting. I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. It's the same word that Jesus Christ used in the upper room when he was breaking the bread at the Last Supper. I'll just read the verses. Luke 22, verse 19 and 20. Christ says, And he took bread and gave thanks and break it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. He's reminding them of what they get in the gospel. They get Christ's body itself. Just as we uh, take of the Lord's Supper, we were reminded of the fact that Jesus stood in our stead. This fact right here is a call to remember that you can have a freedom of repentance because Christ has stood in your stead. You get Christ's body in the gospel. And when Jesus broke the bread and distributed the cup at the Last Supper, he was instituting a, an event in which believers of every age might remember the, the graphic fact that the, king's, that, the, that the sinner's ransom was paid for by the king's very blood. That the, that the guilty can go free because the sinless one was crucified in their stead. It's reminding them of the fact that in this graphic picture of Jesus saying, buy of me and eat of me and drink of me, the fact that at the cross we are given God himself. One writer says it this way, that the supper is a place where God literally lays himself open to us and says, here, you have me. We can repent because we've been given Christ himself. And see, this is how the Spirit stirs this church to repentance again. He's reminding them of the currency of grace. And what is that? It is the blood of God himself. If you're in Revelation, turn to Revelation 5 and look at verse 9. Because look at what we will be singing about in the new heavens. It says, And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain, and Thou hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The very God that we rejected sheds His blood, and that very blood washes us, as we learned about, though it washes us white as snow. The very God we rejected serves to be our Savior and stands in our stead. This is our treasure. This is what the Laodiceans were being called to remember. This is your riches. <laughs> this is the riches of the mystery of Christ himself. That the very one we scorned is the one that took our place and stood in our stead as our Savior. The very one that we spat upon is the one that redeemed us and called us by name and washes us in the very blood that we drew. This is the great remedy of our lackadaisical approach to Christianity. Because how can we be lazy and leisurely when we remember, that, that remember this gospel? 
remember the gospel of a God who welcomes sinners to himself by giving himself to sinners. <laughs> by remembering the gospel of a, of a God who condescended into a man and was bruised and bloodied for us on a tree that we deserved. I think this is what the Spirit is stirring in this church. This church at Laodicea, where is your investment? And I think very clearly the parallels are very strong. The heart of man doesn't change. The heart of man is constantly a heart of a sinner. And churches don't really change. I think we still feel the same effects that the Laodicean church in our 21st century modern day Christian churches. Churches who are invested in a lot of things but have lost their investment in the gospel of God. That have lost their investment in this gospel of substitution that tells them they can buy of me because this gospel I'm tendering is entirely free. I think this is a letter that is tailor-made for us. How often are we guilty of lukewarm Christianity? How often are we guilty of approaching our faith leisurely? It's very easy to become comfy, cozy Sunday Christians. We come and make an appearance and that has no effect on us Monday through Saturday. It's not that the Laodiceans were not true believers, it's that they had become independent and indifferent. And the luxuries that they had enjoyed had made them lackadaisical in their spiritual walk. And such is this invitation, such is this good news of this letter. It's to them and it's to us. Because to every single person who reads these words, the invitation is the same. Come, buy of me gold that is tried in the fire. Come, dine with me. I love Verse 14, where it says, These things saith the Amen. <laughs> that is Jesus himself. He is God's Amen. He is God's welcome to sinners. And such is the spiritual welcome that this church received. And such is the spiritual welcome we receive. To all is issued this welcome to come and find rest at the feet of Christ alone. Because only in Christ alone, God's amen, will every sinner find a home and every runner find rest. Let us pray.